This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. Hi Norman Swan, how are you? I'm fine, Tegan Taylor. What are you working on this week? Well, I've got lots of stuff which I'll talk to you about later. I'll be looking at the chicken and egg, horse and cart when it comes to healthy brains and brain ageing. But but I've been looking at, actually, today the Australian Bureau of Statistics has just released um, the National Health Survey for 2021. So this was a survey done of 11,000 households during COVID. So normally what they would do is they would sometimes tap on doors and do that, do face-to-face interviews or they do telephone interviews and they'd really pursue people and try and get them to take part. This time um, they really couldn't do a lot of that and so these were self-completed online questionnaires. But it does, it does give you quite a few insights. What did they find that was different to other years? Well, it was more limited in terms of their scope, but they um, they found that nearly eight out of ten Australians have what they call a long-term condition. So long-term, it's confusing because they also say that 46% of people had a chronic disease. So a long-term condition, yeah, you know, go on, you know, decisions. So long-term conditions are things like disability or injury or um, high blood pressure or things like that, whereas chronic conditions are, um, you know, cr- chronic, disease, chronic problems that are going to last for a long time that have a diagnosable, or really that are easily diagnosable. And what they found was that of the people who had chronic conditions, that's one in two Australians, which is really quite interesting, mental health behavioural problems uh, were one in five people, one in five of those. Back problems, arthritis, asthma, diabetes. And when you come to um, mental health issues, because we're going to come to mental health issues a little bit later in the show, it's really the 15 to 34 age group that's dominating there in terms of people who are getting that, and it's mostly anxiety and depression. Hard to compare to what came before you know, to, to, in terms of measuring um, what was there with co- what's covered or not, but it just shows the dominance. And then when you look at things like uh, e-cigarette use, for example, that's quite high. One in 12 kids aged 15 to 17 have tried e-cigarettes. Um, uh, 25% of people exceeded the alcohol guidelines. That's more than 10 drinks in the last week or five on a single day, at least monthly over the last year. So there, you know, this does show um, a significant, uh, you know, there are significant gaps in what we need to achieve. 27% of people over 15 are not meeting physical activity guidelines. So we've got a way to go. Um, hard to compare, compare to previous national health surveys, but we'll put the link to that on our website. And what have you been looking at? I've been looking at something slightly less serious than that. Well, I guess it depends on your perspective. I found a case study of a little girl who had something called uncombable hair syndrome, which has the mum of two daughters caught my eye because I probably would have diagnosed them with that. But it's an actual mm. genetic condition. And it, it's it, basically what happens is it involves three different genes that encode for proteins involved in your hair shaft formation. But if you were to look at your hair or my hair under a microscope, the cross-section of it would be somewhere between a circle and a flat oval, depending on how curly or straight your hair is. But this little girl's hair is triangular under the microscope. And uh, it's uh, it's her hair, it's probably fine, but some people with this condition, because it's rare but it's been reported before, um, have other other parts of their body that haven't formed properly. So they I was going to have... say that usually things go along with the, uh, when you've got these congenital problems. Yeah, so things like disproportionately short fingers and toes or fewer teeth than normal or um, skin, teeth, nail sort of disorders. And, um, and what did this little girl have? 
Well, this, I don't know about her, but one, one thing that tickled me about it was there's actually a German children's book from 1845 called Der Peter, Shock-Headed Peter, which probably is depicting this, this uncombable hair syndrome. Gosh. So have they found any treatment for it or it's just that you, you've got to live with it? Some people report that oral biotin supplementation can help, but basically um, you can't self-diagnose it as much as you might think it's a pain to brush your kid's hair. It does need to be diagnosed through molecular genetics. But the good news is that in most cases it actually starts to improve during puberty because your hair structure changes then. Right, and you subject yourself to a perm. (laughs) Well, and what else have you got for us today? I'll also be looking at the relationship between diet and managing symptoms of multiple sclerosis. Well, look forward to that, and that's coming up in a minute. But before that, I'm going to go to blood groups. Your blood group is pretty important information if you're ever to need a blood transfusion or even an organ transplant. It's even more important for the blood bank, who have to find donors to match your blood type and for everyone else who might need blood or a blood product. The problem is that the information used by the blood bank to understand what blood groups are out there and in what numbers is 20 years old, 20 years. And when researchers went out to find and update the prevalence of blood groups in the Australian population, they got a bit of a surprise. It's changed quite significantly. And that has implications for how and where they look for donors. And just so you understand the jargon, blood types are determined by markers on the surface of red blood cells. Those are the blood cells that carry the oxygen in your blood. And the markers are A and or B. And if you've neither A nor B or both, you're called O. Then there's rhesus, which can be positive or negative. A very important blood group is O rhesus negative or O negative, because that's the one that's least likely to cause an immune reaction because you haven't got very much of anything on the surface of your red blood cell. And in an emergency, it can be given when there's no time to find out a patient's blood type. It's called the universal donor. Dr. Rina Hirani of the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood is the lead author of the study, which is published in today's Medical Journal of Australia. Welcome to the Health Report, Rina. Thank you to you both for having me today. Now, you surveyed blood samples from the blood bank and pathology labs? Yeah, we looked at um, some data points from 1.3 million Australian patients and also half a million blood donors and compared them to find out what the proportions of blood types were across the nation. So what was the pattern 20 years ago and what's changed when it comes to blood groups? Yeah, so our previous estimates in the 90s said that we had approximately 19% of rhesus-negative individuals. But with our latest finding, we're finding that Australia is becoming more positive and that there are now 14% um, rhesus-negative people in the community. Now, that's important because, well, first of all, it's important for O-negative because presumably you've got fewer people who've got O-negative. That's correct. So what's the gap between demand for O negative and the supply in terms of you if you've got people, you know, in terms of what's available in the community? Look, we're very lucky in Australia, actually, because Australia has one of the most stable blood supplies in the world. However, there's still some sort of difficulties in obtaining enough universal um, O neg blood types. So it's important that we have the ability to understand the information that we're gathering of what's required in the community so that we can try and work out how our blood donor panel can match what we actually need in our patients. Now, if O negative has fallen, can you use O positive for, as a universal donor? And that's what's exciting about this research is that we can try to um, see what proportions of 
O positive we can use in the community and maybe um, O positive will become the new universal blood type in Australia, which is incredibly exciting. Now that's because you don't get as big a reaction when the rhesus types interact. That's right. So if we can provide O positive blood to RHD positive people, then that means that we can collect O positive more easily and use that in emergencies and have less reactions when when we transfuse people. Now, the other group which is problematic when rhesus negative declines is newborns, because sometimes you have to do what's called an exchange transfusion when they've got life-threatening jaundice and they need RH negative blood. Yes. So, look, we'll always need um, O negative blood um, for all sorts of reasons. You know, what we're trying to do is to make sure we understand what is required in our patient population, make sure we collect what we need and still have enough supply available for situations where we don't know the patient's blood group and need to transfuse with O negative. So it's not just that. Or there's requirements in obstetrics. But it's not just that, it's the other blood groups as well. So B and AB positive have declined. Why are these changes occurring? The group B and AB, what we found in our research is that the percentages of those are actually increasing in the community. And so they're more commonly found because of the ethnic backgrounds that have come into Australia. That's something that's really interesting. Yeah, that's basically what's happening in the community. Give me an example of of ethnic groups and the sort of differences from, say, Anglo-Irish Australians. Group B and AB are more commonly found in Asia, Southeast Asia, India, China, Pakistan, Nepal. And so they are also more likely to be RHD positive as well. So it's simply that pattern of migration. Now, is this a problem? Because presumably the people who need the blood match the donor group. Is there a mismatch here, so to speak? In other words, is the donor group very different from the recipient group from the population? So with our first-time blood donors, what we've actually found is that they're very similar in proportions to the patient groups. So what that means is that it reflects the diversity we're getting in our community. However, it's always important for um, you know O-negative o- blood donors to come in, and if they're O-negative, it's you know highly likely that a family member is O-negative, and we are encouraging people to find out and ask their family members to come and donate blood because it's a fun way to find out about your blood group. So are you now actively recruiting in new communities that you haven't previously gone to where you know that there's high, higher density of people with particular blood groups because of their ethnic background? We're always working to diversify a blood donor panel. So we're working with sports groups and religious groups, community leaders. We've recently done some work with the Islamic Medical Council to diversify panels according to what we will we predict we might need into the future due to our patient information. And culturally, are people tuned in to blood donation? Is there if they're relatively recent migrants to Australia? Yeah, that's something that we are constantly working on. And we, we you know, as with everything, need to get some community support from people to help help us do that most effectively. And I and I guess it's important to know that even though there's certain blood groups that we're talking about here, the eight main ones. There's actually 41 different blood group systems with hundreds of different antigens. And some are very specific to cultural backgrounds. So it's important to diversify our panels to allow for that as well. I was going to ask, ask you that because these are the Landsteiner groups which go back to about 2000, uh, 1914. Just very briefly, how important are all the other blood types that you've got out there? 
They, they can be incredibly important. I'm not sure if you remember Zaina back in 2019. She needed a very specific blood type. It was called Indian B. She actually needed the blood to be negative for that. And that was only possible in people with Pakistan, Indian or Iranian backgrounds. So in order to, to do that, we needed to call upon th those particular cultural groups to come in and and see if they were Indian B negative. So what we actually want is to encourage people to register their ethnicity in the Lifeblood app because it can really help us find potential donors when rare blood is needed. And we do this using genetic technologies to analyse like the extensive blood groups. And we've identified 154 donors with rare blood groups so far. Great. So we'll have a link to that app on our website. Rena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate it. Rina Hirani is a Senior Research Fellow at the Australian Red Cross Lifeblood. But now it's my turn to ask you a question, Norman. Yes. Who, this is a medical history pop quiz in the middle of the show. Who said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food? Probably me, because I enjoy food so much. <laughs> but I don't, who was it? It's attributed to Hippocrates. He probably didn't say it, but where's the fun in that? We can't ask him anymore. No. Anyway, if he ever a, existed. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, but anyway, there is a lot of evidence that a good diet of whole foods, fruit and vegetables, that sort of thing, are really good at preventing you from getting sick. But when people start to talk about using food to treat existing diseases, I start to get sceptical, especially when the disease is something as serious as multiple sclerosis. But it turns out there is good evidence that some MS symptoms can be eased with the right diet, along with medical treatments, of course. And I spoke to someone whose research is about helping people navigate the evidence, prompted in part by her own MS diagnosis. Here's Yasmin Probst from the University of Wollongong. We're really looking into helping people who are already diagnosed with MS to make more informed decisions and to understand how diet and what they eat can contribute towards helping their disease progression. And we've learned that people would like tools. They would like some things to help them along the way. So we'll be working to create some digital tools that people can use, say on your smartphone, for example, little toolkits for health professionals as well. We know that the support team from the health professionals, plus also the family and the carers of people with multiple sclerosis are really important to the outcomes for the person by supporting the health professional to tell the same story about diet and MS, really telling them about the evidence that is there and underpinning what we know about diet and how it can benefit people. There is controversy in this area. So how can you create an authoritative evidence-based resource if it's still in a bit of a state of flux? Yes, it's definitely been one of our challenges. We don't start with what we assume. We'd rather start with looking to see what is the science telling us. And we've done a quite comprehensive review as a basis to this. So we've looked at all of the existing studies in relation to multiple sclerosis and diet or nutrition or food to see what do they tell us. And from there, we were able to work out where can we progress consumer resources? What can we help the consumer to understand where there's already some really strong evidence to show that it should be beneficial for people? So what sort of things is within that solid evidence base? For MS, one of the most established areas is the idea of vitamin D. So vitamin D has been shown to be linked to multiple sclerosis risk, but it's also been shown to be related to progression of the disease. It's a tricky nutrient because, yes, we can consume vitamin D in our diet from various food sources, but we can also get it from exposure to sunlight 
in an appropriate and safe manner. We need to balance out where people are located and then also layer in, are they eating the right foods to get enough vitamin D? And in some cases then also, do they need to have some supplements? So a lot of people with MS do tend to take vitamin D supplements. Another area that is particularly strong and looking very positive is the fatty acid area, polyunsaturated and our monounsaturated fatty acids, making sure that people are aware of the different types of fatty acids, so the food sources of those fatty acids, as opposed to encouraging supplements as the first point of call, but also minimising some of those less ideal fats that we can get in our diet, so trans fats and the saturated fats that can actually create a little bit more inflammation in the body, which is not what we want to have in multiple sclerosis. Those sorts of things tend to come from what we would think of as being a relatively balanced whole food based diet, which there isn't a lot of controversy around that being kind of good for you in general. Are there Mm. any other specifics that might be a bit surprising? There's nothing that's really out of the ordinary in relation to the stronger evidence base. So in terms of the science, it's telling us what we as dietitians at least would expect to be seeing. So foods that are good for you are having positive effects on progression of the disease. So we know that if you eat lots of fruit and vegetables, vegetables in particular, that has positive benefits for people with multiple sclerosis because they can have some really positive anti-inflammatory effects in the body. We also know that there's been a little bit of controversy out there in relation to including or excluding both the dairy food group and the grains and cereals food group. That controversy hasn't gone away, but we're starting to understand that a little bit more. But yes, the idea of a whole food approach is definitely showing to be beneficial and you know, common sense sometimes. So reducing the amount of processed foods or junk foods, as we might call them, not having as many of those by comparison to some of the foods that might be a little bit better for you. It's to us as dietitians almost common sense, but to some people when it's a very busy lifestyle and when they have very limited time on their hands, grabbing a quick bite to eat is probably the priority. But at the same time, that quick bite to eat sometimes isn't necessarily the best option that they could have chosen. What could be the mechanism with the sorts of foods that you're recommending and what is happening with MS in the body? Because MS is something that it has to do with inflammation. It has to do with the myelin, the coating on the nerves. Are we reducing inflammation in the body or are we giving the body the ingredients to reform some of that myelin? As a person with MS, I think, wow, if we could find a way to help our body remyelinate, that would be amazing. What I'm seeing from the science is really that the studies that are showing positive effects are coming through to say that the foods consumed do have some sort of antioxidant effect or the interaction of the various foods together or the nutrients within those foods um, are having an effect on the disease to help reduce the amount of inflammation that's occurring and the amount of inflammation that's evident. But the challenge we have, unfortunately, in Australia is inflammation comes from a number of different sources and even being overweight will increase a person's inflammation and the inflammatory response. So sometimes bringing it back to basics and thinking, okay, well, what could I do here? Maybe having a look at weight management might be important for some people over others. Maybe balancing out intake to a more whole food-based approach might be beneficial to others. You know, there are different approaches needed for different people because the disease is quite unique. How does this role of diet play into the other drugs or therapies that someone with MS would be being offered? That's one of the good things about food. There aren't too many interactions that are negative in relation to the disease-modifying therapies that people with multiple sclerosis are placed on. So there haven't been any negative reports to my understanding in relation to normal consumption of 
food products and any interactions with the medications. But generally speaking, sticking to moderation is sticking to what you should be doing. We've seen that food can actually be quite complementary and can actually help to minimise some of the symptoms that people with MS, despite being on disease-modifying therapy, still are faced with. So stick to whole foods over supplementation and don't quit your drugs your doctors put you on. I'd say definitely listen to your doctor. Um, I mean, supplementation, I wouldn't say don't do it. I'd say, again, listen to your healthcare team. Don't start going to the chemist and buying a whole range of supplements to just have everything under the sun because that could actually cause a negative effect if they're interacting with each other. I think the main thing to keep in mind is that no person with MS is the same as the next. We're all quite unique and we all have some different effects of the disease on ourselves. Even if someone is diagnosed at the exact same time or the same life stage, it's highly unlikely that they will have the exact same progress throughout. Saying, oh, you've got MS, you must be just like Joe down the road. It's not the case for MS, that's for sure. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining us. That's okay, thank you. Associate Professor Yasmin Probst is a Multiple Sclerosis Australia Senior Research Fellow and an academic at the University of Wollongong. That's so interesting. The next story is about chicken and egg, horse and cart when it comes to things that increase the risk of dementia. It's known that when someone's thinking abilities and memory decline, they develop a range of mental health issues, often depression and anxiety, at least to begin with. But could it go the other way? Could mental health issues raise the risk of cognitive decline and dementia? maybe because they share similar causes in the brain. Well, a study of hospital and other records of nearly 2 million New Zealanders over a stretch of 30 years has found a dementia risk increase of perhaps four or five-fold in people with mental health issues. But there might be more to it when you dig a little. The lead researcher was Dr. Leah Richman-Rekert of the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is an enormous study. What did you find? We found that people who had been diagnosed with a mental health condition were about four times more likely to later develop dementia than those without a mental health condition. And this link was evident for many different types of mental health problems. For instance, people with depression, anxiety, substance use problems, psychosis, or who had engaged in self-harm were all at elevated risk for developing dementia as they grew older. And somewhat surprisingly, uh, the link between mental health problems and dementia was actually stronger than the link between physical health problems and dementia. And the association that we found with mental health problems remained even after we accounted for people's histories of physical illness and their socioeconomic circumstances. So we're talking about there's particularly heart disease, which increases your risk of dementia. That's right. And was this at any age in terms of the diagnosis of mental health issue? It was. So individuals were between 21 and 60 years old at the start of the study. And as I mentioned, we followed them for three decades. So they were between 51 and 90 years old at the end of the study. So this link was really evident across all ages that we looked at. If you're diagnosing in hospital, it's likely that these people had more severe mental health issues. It's a very selected population, not necessarily representative of the New Zealand population. Yes, this is a very important caveat, I think. Just as you've noted, Norman, this means that we would tend to capture mental health problems that are more severe in nature. So it does remain to be seen whether the link we found between mental health conditions and dementia would extend to less severe cases of mental health problems. We feel reasonably confident that it would. There's been findings from prior studies 
using different methods to measure mental health conditions that have also shown this link with dementia. The other caveat might be is that there are people who study dementia who believe that dementia is actually a lifelong condition, which Mm -hmm. slowly declares itself through life. Mm -hmm. Could it be that these are people with dementia, which has just not declared itself, that in Mm -hmm. fact dementia is causing their mental health issue, it's just the dementia is not obvious yet? Yeah, I think this is a really important point. So it is certainly possible that, you know, mental health disorders and dementia might reflect some shared causes, or as you've noted, that people might experience a lifelong vulnerability to poor brain health that shows up as poor mental health in early life and as dementia in later life. But we feel reasonably confident that the mental health disorders that we've identified in our study are not simply early symptoms of dementia for a couple of reasons. A primary one is that we found this association across all ages. We also found that the symptoms of a mental health disorder were not coming online, you know, very close in time to the symptoms of dementia. We also found this link for types of mental health conditions that are not frequently diagnosed kind of early in the sort of onset of dementia or near the period of time of onset of dementia. So for instance, substance use problems. So all of those observations make us feel more confident that the mental health conditions that we are identifying are distinct from the dementia syndrome. So the $64 question is intervention. In other words, was there any Mm -hmm. signal in your study that intervening made a difference? We were not designed to test whether treatment or intervention for mental health problems actually reduced risk for dementia. And that's something that we're really interested in doing in follow-up research. And the other question about intervention is that if this is cause and effect, the common pathway, according to a lot of research, is inflammation, Mm -hmm. is that you get Mm -hmm. inflammation, premature aging in the brain, which results in more mental health issues such as depression and dementia. In other words, the common problem is inflammation and premature aging in the brain, leading to depression and then dementia. None of the treatments attack that part of the problem. They're more superficial. They change your behavior if it's psychotherapy or they Mm -hmm. change the uh, neurotransmitters, but they don't go upstream to that inflammation, which is why some people are talking about sleep and body clocks, changing your diet to a Mediterranean diet and so on and so forth. Is intervention in the current form of intervention likely to change the direction of this, even if it's got a common origin? I think so. I think that, as you mentioned, inflammation may be one linking mechanism that we need to be thinking about. But I think there's several other ways in which mental health problems might raise people's risk for dementia. And the ways in which they might raise people's risk for dementia can also be important targets for intervention. So, for instance, people with mental health problems might find it more difficult to lead healthy lives, both physically and socially. So they might exercise less or drink alcohol excessively, have trouble staying socially connected. And all of these things might increase their risk for dementia. And there's other possible explanations as well. And even if mental health problems themselves are not leading to poor health behaviors or less social connection, these kinds of dementia risk factors are more common in patients with mental health problems. 
And so this suggests that it may still be important to be targeting some of these factors among people who are in mental health treatment that might still help to reduce risk for cognitive decline later on. You know, historically, we've been thinking about sort of assessing for and treating dementia much later in life. But our study really suggests that we might need to be thinking about these things much earlier in life, in the the 20s, the 30s, and and the 40s. A much more whole-person approach. One thing I think it's important to note is that although dementia is not uncommon in the population, the majority of us will grow old without going on to develop dementia. And the same holds true for people who have uh, mental health problems. So although mental health problems are a signal of risk for dementia, most people who have a mental health condition will not go on to develop dementia. And so mental health problems are not a life sentence that always results in dementia. Leah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Dr. Leah Richmond-Rickert is in the Department of Psychology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. This has been The Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. I'm Tegan Taylor. We'll see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.